Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and today is that day of the week which I always look forward to. Is it's time for Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk? A solid two hours of Guy Talk. Let me know what you have for the power panel today. And as far as questions go, you can text them over 877 933 2484. Again, 877 933 2484. My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish, Dr. Greg Borgon, and Jeff. For Dorn. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be here. Good to be here with you, Bill. Hi, Bill. Uh, I couldn't agree more. So as we wait for a couple of questions to come in, I've got something I'd love, I'd love to ask you guys. If somebody came to you and said, you know, my life just hasn't turned out the way I thought it was going to turn out. You know, I, and to be honest, I'm, I'm a little disappointed and, and a little despairing uh, with God. What would you say to him? Well, that's kind of a common refrain out of almost every adult Christian that I've talked to along the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I think that, as a, especially as teenagers or adults, when we come to faith in Jesus, it's such a, a thrilling and emotional experience that I think we our mind dreams of all the great things the Lord's going to do, and he does. But he doesn't always do it the way we think it should be done. And therefore, for a lot of us, when we have troubles, family issues, health issues, it's hard to understand, where are you, Jesus, in all of this? And... The bottom line is, this is why we need one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be encouraging, comforting, challenging, and being the voice of the Lord there for one another, because this life can be rough. My suggestion uh, to him would be, have you tuned your heart to the heart of God and understood what God's call is on your life? In other words, Ephesians you know, 2.10 talks about the fact that God has declared a unique purpose for our life. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Have you aligned yourself with that purpose? And when you do, there's where you're going to find complete fulfillment. When you tune your heart to the heart of God and align your life to his purposes for you, then that brings meaning and significance to your life. You know, one of the great conundrums of Scripture is that we need to die in order to live. And when we are crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in and through me, Mm -hmm. well, then he is the vine that is going to produce the fruit in us that are just simply branches. I think a lot of Christians say, come on, God, bless my life, bless my plans. Here we go. We're going Mm -hmm. this way. Instead of saying, not my will, but your will be done. Greg, I think what you touched on is so critical. In very few churches, and I don't care what background the church is, there's been very little teaching on our identity in Jesus Christ and our purpose in Jesus Christ. And most people think their purpose is to show up to church on Sunday, maybe go to a midweek Bible study, and give an offering. And that's fine, but that's not our purpose. Our purpose goes way beyond that. So, Greg, I think you're absolutely right. If we can help people understand, why am I here? And in the uniqueness of the way Jesus has created me, sure, I'm not going to be a Billy Graham. I'm not going to be necessarily on television and have a program. But in the setting I'm in, I can represent Jesus and speak for him 
to people who are in need. Yeah, I think it's also helpful to, to understand that for some unknown reason, God has chosen his finite creatures to facilitate his redemptive purposes in a fallen world. That's the generic purpose for us all. But the, again, Tom, the, the reference I was referring to, Ephesians 2.10, talks about God preparing a unique purpose mm-hmm. for our life in advance. Okay. In other words, before we ever came to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the fact is, is that none of us are a happenstance or a mistake. Uh, we were all on the heart of God before we ever came to be. It says in Psalm 139 that God superintended our formation in our mother's womb. He knew us before we ever were. He set the number of days we'd be walking this earth. So none of us are a mistake, a happenstance, or a coincidence. We were on the heart of God, and we have a unique purpose to fulfill. It's kind of looking like looking at this huge mosaic of Christ followers, members of the family of God, members of the kingdom of God. And each piece is like a mosaic piece with a representative color and shape. And when that piece is missing, it's obvious when you look at the mosaic. The piece is missing. So... I would encourage the individual to find out what their piece in God's mosaic is and plug in. <laughs> you know, I, I want to jump one more thing here. And, Bill, I, I apologize. I don't want to take no, anything Tom, away from please. it. On Sunday morning, and I'm going to mention this this Sunday because we're starting a series on what makes up the healthy church. What does the Bible say about a healthy church? What's going on? Every Sunday when Jen and I drive to church, we go buy a ball diamond. There are more Little League kids on Sunday morning playing baseball, both mm. male and female, and hundreds of parents there. And I'm thinking, my identity isn't tied up in baseball. These kids are not hearing they're created unique, just what you said, Greg, and therefore they're not going to grasp most of them their purpose. And you look at what's happened to our teens today in this country and young people. People are searching desperately to find out who they are. They're not getting much direction, and the church needs to step up to that challenge. That didn't used to be the case. Just a short time ago that you would have athletic events, especially youth athletic events, scheduled on a Sunday morning on a weekend like that. Nor, by the way, even on a Wednesday night, which was often considered to be family church night or family night, uh, plain and simple. But I remember reading a a book, or actually somebody presented me with a book, and they wanted me to read it. And the cover, I think it's an old Christian book. It says, God is my co-pilot. To get back to this question that we were talking about, I remember responding to the person, if God's your co-pilot, switch seats, right? (laughs) He doesn't want to help us live our lives. He wants to be our lives, right? Mm -hmm. So as we submit to him, you will experience the fruit of the Spirit. You will experience that abundant life that Scripture talks about. Yeah, it was Neil Anderson in Freedom in Christ Ministries who was fond of saying, it's not what you do. That determines who you are. It's who you are in Jesus Christ that should determine what you do. Yes, and that is the message that needs to be heard over and over and over. I don't think it's heard in most places like it used to be. We need to hear that again. Yeah. Yeah, six minutes into the program, and there's a lot of wisdom coming out already at the power panel today. (laughs) Whoa. All right. But let's say I just came to faith in Christ last week, and the first thing I read was Proverbs 16, and it says this. We may make our plans, but God has the last word. You may think everything you do is right, but the Lord judges your motives. Ask the Lord to bless your plans, and you will be successful in carrying them out. I'm pretty excited all of a sudden, just so you know. <laughs> My life is going to turn out the way I want. Yes, <laughs> Bill. Yeah, there, there are some that will say, yeah, believe in Jesus, and your life will be happy and wonderful and blessed, and you know everything will be great. And um, you have to balance that with another 
uh, description of what the Christian life is like, and that is when Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, right? You will be persecuted on account of my name. Uh, So whether good or bad comes, and by the way, he says he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous and causes evil to to happen on the the good and the bad. Good and bad happen to the good and bad in this world. Um, I think the key to having that abundant, blessed life is not related to our circumstances. Like Paul, who said, I learned the secret of being content in whatever my circumstances. I think that's the abundant life that Christ talks about. You know, it's Mm -hmm. interesting that people strive to live what's called a balanced life, which is an absolute impossibility. It's like walking a high wire. They are trying to get from point A to B. Your body is in, has tension. You are full of anxiety. You're trying to maintain your balance. A crisis from the right hits you. You lean into it. A crisis from the left hits you, uh, hits you and you lean into it. And some crises you don't even know are coming. So you spend your whole life living anxiously and with a great deal of, of anxiety. That's not the way Christ lives. So if a balanced life is impossible, if we continually try to make adjustments to whatever comes at us, we're going to be constantly in chaos, then what's the alternative? The alternative is a centered life. The ballast of your life is your central beliefs, your core values, your worldview, and your motive, which need to be biblical. That will give you the ballast you need to weather whatever storm comes your way because you're living a centered life versus a balanced life. Years ago, when the Lord took my wife and I to Bangladesh for a while, I thought I was going as the senior pastor of this church to support the missionaries from our church. No, that wasn't why I went. I was there to learn from Jesus what it's really like to follow him in an environment Hmm. that is persecuted. And these Christians over there uh, lived under a lot of Muslim rule, and they lost their children. Many of them had disease they weren't getting cured of. Many of them were beaten. It was a whole variety of things. And yet these were the most joyful people I ever met in my life because they expected persecution to be normal. In America, We've bought into this that if you love Jesus, everything will be great. And therefore, we created a dichotomy for people they can't sort out. And I don't know about you guys. I can't remember the last time uh, I heard a preacher preach about persecution and how to stand up during persecution for the truth of the gospel. But we need to be aware of that. It's coming. Mm-hmm. My power panel today in alphabetical order is uh, <laughs> Greg B., Tom P., and Jeff V. I'm always at the back of the list. You are. You're in the back of the bus, hosted by uh, me, which is Bill A. And we are looking, to, looking for your questions today. Send them over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. There's some great questions coming in. Can't wait to get back from the break and get your questions on the air. Again, 877-933-2484. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. 
And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. Welcome to the show. It's time for Guy Talker. Guys who talk. We're looking forward to hearing from you today. I know you've got a question filed somewhere in the back of your brain. Maybe it's on a post-it note in your Bible, or maybe it's something you've been chewing on since early this morning, and you want to talk about it and get it out there, because this is what we do in community. We gather and have discussion. I think this is how the Bereans did it. They got together and evaluated what they heard against what Scripture uh, taught. So hopefully we're, we're modeling just like the Bereans. Uh, I've got Jeff Ferdorn, uh, Tom Parrish, and uh, Greg Borgond as my power panel today. This question has come up, I think, before. So, guys, let's uh, answer it, and hopefully this, uh, lis- this listener will be able to enjoy this answer. Uh, why did uh, he put Jesus with the Jews and not somewhere else like Asia or Africa? Because since he knew that the Jewish people were not going to totally believe when this all started. Uh, Greg, do you want to answer that? Well, first of all, the Jews were God's chosen people. Mm-hmm. It's from that race, that that group of people, that he would demonstrate his holiness and reveal himself, knowing full well that the revelation was going to ultimately extend to Gentiles and anybody beyond uh, the Jewish nation. So they were God's special people initially. They were the repository of his teaching. They were the, ex, the ex, expositors of his teaching. And so he chose them um, and, and became a part of them to minister to them for the sake of the world. Yeah, I mean, the, God chose Abram of Ur. He didn't choose, you know, Minduk Tuong of China or, you know, Sven Jorgensen of Sweden. <laughs> he picked Abram of Ur and he said, leave your country and I'm going to show you a land and watch what I'm going to do. And I'm going to make a covenant with you. And one of the components of that covenant was that your people will possess this land forever and that all the nations will be blessed through you. That is a reference to the coming Christ, the coming Redeemer. And that promise was passed on to Isaac. And so the Messiah would be a descendant of Isaac. And then that was passed on to Jacob. And that line of the Messiah continued through the tribe of Judah, through David, King David, ultimately to the Christ. Uh, so, yes, the Jewish people, starting with Jacob, who became Israel, what were God's, are God's chosen people, uh, like you said, Greg, to, to give the law to, to be a special people that were set apart from all the other nations of the world, and most importantly, to bring forth the Messiah, to, to die on a cross for the sins of the world. Let me add a little to that, and uh, I agree with what you're saying. My understanding has always been there was nothing special about the people of Israel. As a people, it was the Lord's choice. He could have chose somebody else, and he he can do what he wants to do. They weren't just chosen because they were special. They were chosen for a purpose, and the purpose was, as Greg said, to be that repository. Now you get to the New Testament, and you read Peter. Isn't it interesting the exact same language of being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, that applied to the Jews is now applied to the believers and that's something we don't talk about very often. I mean, I, I hardly ever hear anybody say, hey, the church are the chosen people. The believers are. And yet the Bible says that. And we're always quick to talk about Israel, which I agree with. I'm not against that at all. But we have to understand this grafting in or this becoming literally one people, Jews and Gentiles, 
under the auspices of the blood of Jesus. Yeah, being a chosen, selected, holy people to God is a set-apart people. That's what that word holy means. So Israel was set apart, so the nations may know that I am the Lord. In the same way, we as believers have been set apart. We've been made holy so that the world would know the gospel, and by the God, by believing the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, to whosoever believes. If God would have revealed himself to someone in, in China or Northern Europe or whatever and called them to be his people, I'm pretty sure that people wouldn't have fared much better than Israel. Yeah, it's interesting. One Bible scholar put it this way. He said, God chose the nation of Israel to be the people through whom Jesus Christ would be born, yes. the Savior from sin and death. God first promised the Messiah after Adam and Eve's fall into mm-hmm. sin. God later confirmed that uh, the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus Christ is the ultimate reason why God chose Israel to be his special people. God did not need to have a chosen people. But he decided to do it that way. Jesus had come from the same nation of people, and God chose Israel. However, God's reason for choosing the nation of Israel was not solely for the purpose of producing the Messiah. God's desire for Israel was that they would go and teach others about him. Israel was to be a nation of priests, prophets, missionaries to the world. God's intent was for Israel to be a distinct people, a nation who pointed others towards God and his promised provision of a Redeemer, Messiah, and Savior. For the most part, Israel failed in the task. However, God's ultimate purpose for Israel, that is, uh, bringing the Messiah into the world, was fulfilled perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. You could almost read the same thing about the church. We have the same responsibility. We've been set apart for the same purpose. And we're going to be held accountable to that as well. So we better understand that we are not there to warm pews. We are there to take this message out about Jesus and to bring as many people into the kingdom as possible. Mm -hmm. All right, this next question, gentlemen, comes from overseas uh, by a a man named Sven Jorgensen, and he's (laughs) (laughs) married. I knew you'd get us in trouble, Jeff. There you go. (laughs) But uh, here's the question. Uh, I was... I was, uh, could you give some thought on New Testament giving? I was raised being taught we must tithe and give to a faith promise missions program. I have been told now that tithing was an Old Testament command under yeah. the law that we do not have to follow. Can you give some clarification? Oh, sure. You know, you think about it. We, we've been saved by grace through faith. I mean, it wasn't our choice. The Lord came to us. Now, we could respond or not respond. But it was the Lord's choice to bring us. He brought that grace in his shed blood. And I just taught my congregation this past Sunday that once we are saved, then everything we look at in life, like loving others, forgiving others, giving, whatever, is all done out of thankfulness. Not out of tithing. That's the letter of the law. But out of thankfulness. And if you give out of thankfulness, that's where the Lord really multiplies the effort. Not that I'm going to get anything back, but he will take that that. $10 that I give out of thankfulness to him and turn it into maybe a $50 bill or a $100 bill in terms of ministry to others. Uh, that is what I'm looking for, and that's what I'm trying to teach people to understand. Thankfulness has to be at the heart of the whole thing, not a percentage. Yeah, I mean, 2 Corinthians 9, I think, gives us a, a the model for the New Testament believer to give. And, and Paul specifically says in chapter 9 in 2 Corinthians that we are not to give out of obligation. with The tithe was an obligation. They were to give a tenth of their crops, their 
their uh, animals, their livestock, and so on, uh, to the work of the Lord. Remember, the Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel that did not get an inheritance of the land. And so the 11 other tribes gave a tenth of what they were produced, uh, and it went to the work of God in the temple and to the Levites who who took care of the temple and ministered in the temple and so on. So uh, Paul continues in chapter 9 that says we are to give cheerfully as we determine from our heart. So that is really the New Testament standing. Now some will say, well, didn't Abraham give a tenth to Melchizedek, and that predates the law. And so doesn't the tithe then predate the law and still apply to us today? Well, I'd like to point out that circumcision also (laughs) predates the law, and uh, no Christian would say that that still applies to us, or virtually no Christian would say that applies to us. So I think the, the standard in the New Testament is you give cheerfully as you've determined from your heart. And oftentimes that generosity will exceed 10%. <laughs> it's interesting because as I look at the scriptures, there's only two instances in the New Testament where the word tithe is even used. And it's both times Jesus is critical of the Pharisees and Sadducees in they thinking that their tithe will satisfy the Lord when he was really after their heart. So there's no no statement in the New Testament that talks about we need to be tithing. What it talks about is we need to give our whole heart to Jesus. And quite frankly, there are probably many of us that think we're doing well with giving 5%, and the Lord wants us to give 50% out of thankfulness. It's not the number. It's what he drives our heart to do. Yeah, yeah if you're giving you know, less than 1% or something to the work of, king, of kingdom work, um, I'm not going to have a tithing conversation with you. I'm, I'm probably going to have a faith conversation with you. Where's your sure. faith at? Don't you understand that this is all his, it's all God's, and that out of thankfulness of our heart, as you were describing, Tom, earlier, we should give out of the cheerfulness of our heart. So when I have an opportunity, I, I do a couple things. I just pray, number one, and say, Lord, um, is this a worthy ministry, a worthy cause, and what should I give? And then there's, I don't think there's a wrong answer. I like that. That's a good answer, Jeff. And and Sven's not mad at you anymore, just so you know. <laughs> Thanks, Sven. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. All right, and we've only got like a couple of minutes. Uh, it's hard to wind you guys up uh, with a couple of minutes to go before the, the hard break. But uh, one of the things I want to ask you about, and maybe you can look it up when we do take the break, is from Second Corinthians chapter 7, um, talking about the difference between godly gre- grief and worldly grief. Um, and I want to be able to to repent and and do a better job of repenting, uh, specifically when I'm dealing with some uh, troubling sins in my life. So the question is, what's the the difference between godly grief and worldly grief? So that's the question. Uh, we're going to address that, I think, after the break. If you've got a question for us, let us know what it is. We just love getting questions, and we do our best to answer everything that comes in. And if you would like to text it over right now, 877-933-2484. If you uh, would prefer to send an email to me, I can get that as well. That would be bill at myfaithradio.com. Bill at myfaithradio.com. I'll keep an eye on that as well. Some people don't like to text, uh, so but I'd rather email. You can do that too. Just get your questions over. And we'll take a break and be right back with the power panel today, which is Pastor Tom Parrish, Dr. Greg Borgond, and Jeff Verdorn. We'll be right back with lots of guy talk in just a minute. 
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. We are enjoying Guy Talk today, or Guys Who Talk. We love this segment, and if you uh, would like Dust for us to answer a question, send it over, 877-933-2484. Jeff, Greg, and Tom are ready and willing to answer whatever questions you have. So, guys, right before the break, my question was, what is the difference between godly grief and worldly grief, and how can I repent better, specifically when dealing with a specific sin like lust? It may be helpful just to read the passage that refers to that first. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestly this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment— at every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order for your earnestness for uh, us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So I think it, it has to do with the motive of our grief. What is motivating the grief? I mean, you can be grieving the fact that you didn't win the lottery. <laughs> or you could be grieving the fact that somebody found out you lied on your resume. Um, That's not godly grief. That's worldly grief. It's the motive because somebody found out you cheated uh, on your taxes. Um, If it drives you to repentance before God, that's godly grief. It drives you to find a better tax preparer so you can cheat again. That's worldly grief. I think there's there's actually several different kinds of repentance talked about in scripture. Some remember repentance is a changing of the mind or turning from one thing to another. God calls us to turn from the world. Uh, that's one Greek word. There's a turning to God, and there's a hint here in verse ten of Second Corinthians seven that you just read, Greg, that says godly sorrow. Uh, leads repentance uh, that leads to salvation. So there is a first and foremost a repentance unto salvation. So you turn from following the ways of the world and the world, the flesh and the devil, and you turn to following God. I sometimes in my classes call that the capital R repentance. It's a repentance unto salvation. But now that we're saved, God calls us to continue to turn from the ways of the world. You've now been made holy. Why would we live like the world again? So the small r repentance that is a lifelong uh, ordeal that we turn from the things of the world, that we the ways that we used to live in, and we follow God's ways. Um, but then the worldly repentance is one that doesn't have a, a sorrow. It, it's a regret. It's a oh, I'm 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 upset that I got caught at what I did, kind yeah. of thing, right? That's it's it. not a true change of heart like biblical repentance is. Yeah. After fifty years of Christian counseling, I've seen this a few times, maybe once or twice or a thousand. What it comes down to is is that godly grief changes lives. People come new people. They mend relationships. They go out and they they make right what they had done wrong. And it's not just a momentarily getting out of the problem. It becomes part of their lifestyle. Worldly grief 
is how can I get away with this? Hmm. Or what have I got to do to get out of this mess right now? It is not a life change or a worldview that makes all the difference. So when we want to talk about godly grief, it changes your perspective on people in life. If it's worldly grief, though, it's what can I get away with this time? I mean, if you're talking about repentance, I mean, just as you were saying, Jeff, there's different types of repentance. But the scripture also said that there should be fruit befitting repentance. So look at the fruit that the repentance has produced. Did it cause you to change 180? Did it cause you to confess your sin? Did it cause you to decide that you were going to live in a certain way as a result of it? That would be godly grief. You know, I love the passage in Romans 6, the start of Romans 6. Paul just in the previous chapter was talking about this wonderful salvation and the grace of God and, you know, that we're saved. And then he says, okay, I'm going to anticipate the next question. Because now that we are saved and we're forgiven and we've received this grace of God, this question that he then asks in verse 1, chapter 6, Romans, is what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, he answers it immediately, and he says, by no means. I love the King James Version. It says, God forbid. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Right? Mm -hmm. I think when we understand that we have been crucified with Christ, as we were talking in the previous segment, that we've died to sin, um, I think we start understanding, don't you know that you've been crucified with Christ? Romans 6 goes on to say, yes, we know that. We've been crucified. And so we know it. We, 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 know, we no longer then turn to the world and do the things that the world does, but rather live for God. I, uh, when I was counseling, this is a true story. I had a young adult woman come to me and say, I, I need your wisdom, Pastor. And I said, well, what's going on? She says, well, my boyfriend, you know, a month ago, broke up with me for the ninth time. I said, what? Yeah, he broke up for the ninth time. But every time he comes back and he says, oh, I was terribly wrong. Please take me back. After nine times, what should I do? I said, what we're talking about here, unless there's a real change in worldview and behavior, you know, he's just waiting for the next convenient person to come along and he'll dump you again. And that's exactly, exactly what happened the 10th time. Mm. No, that's... Sorry to hear that. All right, gentlemen, I don't know. I've not studied this, so I I can't weigh in on the two different accounts of the uh, Mephibosheth that is in 2 Samuel 4 and 2 Samuel 9. Uh, They have two different accounts of what happened to um, Mephibosheth. There's a discrepancy, apparently. Can you guys weigh in on that? It's hard to understand exactly what you're talking about specifically because there's a couple of things that come to light when you look at chapter 4 and chapter 9. First of all, there were two Mephibosheths. One was actually Saul's son who ended up dying at the hands of the Gibeonites because of the sin of their father Saul. They came and requested from David the seven uh, members of Saul's family as a, a way of mediating their um their grief and, and what Saul had done to them. But that's not what this passage is talking about. It's Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. Now, the other part that I, I'm wondering if, if the inquirer was talking about is that in verse 7 of chapter 9, and David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. 
So he's talking obviously about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Mm-hmm. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. So that may be the confusion. But the idea is, is that the word father uh, means father in one sentence and grandfather in the next. So this, as one scholar said, this phenomenon can also be seen in some of the genealogies. The grandson is literally the son. As So the point I'm trying to make is that the, the scripture that we're reading here is absolutely clear that Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, whom which David took under his care, and he, he, he fed him at his table every single day, David said, and even had Ziba, um, uh, Saul's servant, make sure that they would take care of the property and that the um, produce from the property would be given to Mephibosheth. So David made uh, provision for that. So that's that's how I'm looking at the passage. I don't I don't know uh, what else. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's very helpful, Greg. I appreciate yeah. your uh, analysis on that. I looked at this pretty carefully because I've been studying uh, in the Old Testament, and it's interesting. Greg and I are both writers. We've written many books. Jeff, is your book coming out yet? Uh, soon. Soon. Okay. We're waiting I got a, for it. I got a pamphlet. You never asked me about my pamphlet. <laughs> you know, the Lord, the Word of God is inspired, and it's absolutely true, but he still worked through the personality of the writers. What you have in four is a different focus than you have in nine. The focus on four is basically uh, the whole story of uh, Ishbosheth, who was Saul's son, who basically rebelled, and Abner took him across the Jordan River and set him up as king after Saul was dead against David. And that that's the whole story. Now, Jonathan comes into that story for one verse. One verse in chapter 4, and the Mephibosheth. And he, he acknowledges, this is Jonathan's brother who did this, and then they wound up killing him, and then he killed the two guys who killed them. You get to chapter 9, it's not the story anymore. Now he's giving you the details of what he said in 4 about this young man who in haste, the nurse dropped him, and he wound up with his feet all broken up. Now chapter 9 goes into a lot more detail, and the mercy of David, that Jonathan was his best friend, and he showed mercy and kindness to Mephibosheth, brought him in, and made him part of the royal family. Mm-hmm. I have the sneaky suspicion he would have done that same thing with Saul's other son if his son had come to him and said, you're the next anointed, I will serve you. But that's not the way it worked out. Yeah, so I didn't see a discrepancy either. The chapter four story is when was years earlier and uh, it's because Saul's family is all being killed by David's troops. They, uh, Seth is, is brought out and carried off by the nurse for, to protect him probably from being killed by, by David's men much later than in chapter nine, David says, Hey, is there anybody left from Saul's house, from Jonathan's house? And I, I'm going to take care of them because, um, you know, I, I really loved Jonathan and I wanted to honor him. And, uh, so he shows him kindness at that point and basically brings him into his court. Although there was a little, some issues later on, I think in about chapter 19, 20, 21, where there are some issues later on, but oh, there so I don't see a dis- issues later There's on. There's always <laughs> issues later on, but yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what the discrepancies uh, were in that question, but I don't see it. If it's there, I've missed it. Okay, are we all in agreement that it's one of the top five hardest names to pronounce in the Bible? Yes, okay, Mephiboseth. 
Mephibosheth, I think. Yeah, I said I've, it wrong. I've worked, I don't know. I don't know if I've said it wrong. I have a or, wonderful app on my phone that pronounces every name in the Old and New Testament. <laughs> it's just Fib for short. All right, I like that. I like that. I like that. All right, I believe when God gives us a command, though it may be, though it may seem hard or even impossible, all things are possible with Christ Jesus. So how do we pray without ceasing? I mean, pr- prayer. With, uh, there was a, there was this great classic written about Brother Lawrence, who prayed without ceasing. It wasn't a matter of verbalizing words without stopping. It was a matter of consciously acknowledging the presence of God, seeing God in the nature around them, even in washing dishes, as the classic talks about. So it's being being aware of, of God's existence and his influence and his creation all around us, that is prayer without ceasing. Prayer is not just asking for something. Prayer is also an act of worship. So worshiping God's creation, acknowledging him as the creator and the provider of all things, doesn't necessarily need to be vocalized with words or even mentally vocalized with words. It means awareness as well. You can be praying without saying anything by just acknowledging God's presence in your life. I agree with that. I, When I see passages like in Galatians where it says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh, it's walking in a state of mind, it's walking in union, it's walking in trust, it's walking in faith, the righteous shall live by faith. It's walking in this abiding as we abide in him, as we trust in him, as we fix our eyes on him, as we seek first his kingdom, as we pray without ceasing. I think they're all kind of describing the same thing. If you are if you are present with the Lord, if you are actively trusting in him with all of your heart and not leaning on your own understanding, then he will direct your paths. So I, I totally agree that I think some want to take this as a narrow definition of somehow you're you're in your closet praying 24-7. I don't think that's it. I think it's abiding in him. I mean, the other thing about prayer, as we talked about, is as an act of worship. So the question I would ask is, is your life a prayer? Mm-hmm. Is your way in which you carry yourself as a representative of God's kingdom, of being a citizen of his kingdom, is it a prayer? Does it represent a prayer to God as an act of worship? Now, you know, I'm always going to look at the Greek text. <laughs> I, I always look. Ceasing there doesn't mean just continually 24-7. It means it is an ongoing practice. And when I coach football, I coached football for several years when I taught school. When the season ended and they were getting ready for the next season, I would tell the guys, continue to work out. Work out every day, which is also like saying work out without ceasing. In other words, you're not working out 24 hours a day, but you have that habit of doing it every single day. Very good point. I I think of the in the Gospels it says Jesus, as was his practice, went to a solitary place to pray. Right, that was his practice. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, lots and lots of guy talks still ahead. Let me know what you have for a question for the Power Panel eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Again, 877-933-2484. You can also email me, if you like, bill at myfaithradio.com.
Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. Welcome back to Guy Talk Now with more questions and more answers. Let me know what you have for the panel, 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, what does it mean that the spiritual man judges all things? 1 Corinthians 2.15. What does it mean that the spiritual man judges all things? And the question that is attached to it uh, says that... um, uh, can you tell me in 1 Corinthians 2.15 where it says that we're not to be judged by anyone, what if we feel convicted or even like we are always doing something wrong when we're around others? Are we doing something wrong because we shouldn't feel judged by people? Well, I think that conviction part of that question is a, is a completely different question, right? Mm-hmm. If you feel uh, convicted by God, by the Spirit of God, for what you're doing or the choices that you're making, well, that's a good thing, right? Um, what what Paul is talking about is you're free in Christ, so the, the world can't judge you. It has no authority to judge you. You've been made holy and righteous and blameless in God's eyes. And so he says then the person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things. We are competent to judge. Um, it's interesting. One apparent contradiction in Scripture is that Scripture says we're not to judge anybody, and then Paul says, no, we're competent to judge all things. Well, what is he talking about? That word in the Greek is krinos, I believe, if I remember correctly, but it can mean two different things. One is to condemn. The other is to discern. We're not to condemn. We are to discern. And so the people of God should be discerning people. And in fact, Paul goes on to say, don't you know that we will judge the world. There's a final judgment day for the world, and we will judge the world, even angels, he says. So, yes, we should be competent to judge the things in this world because we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth within us. That verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but he is himself to be judged by no one. Verse 16 says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Then when you read the first verse in in uh, in chapter 3, or in, in uh, chapter 3, yes, mm-hmm. but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So in other words, if somebody's walking in the Spirit, it's the Spirit of God working through that individual that gives them the capacity to connect the dots, to draw conclusions, to make, a, to t- to make evaluations, to, as Jeff just said, to to be discerning as long as you're walking in the Spirit. But Paul is talking about the whole fact that I'm not talking to you as a spiritual person. I'm talking to you as infants in Christ. So he had to go down a level to go ahead and address the issue. It's interesting. One thing I try to teach people, and I've been teaching how to study the Bible. If you look at verses uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, that last statement, but we have the mind of Christ, is the summary statement of everything else he's saying there. When you have the mind of the Lord Jesus, you will know the truth. When you don't have the mind of the Lord Jesus, or you are not following Jesus as you should, you're not only going to be an infant, you're probably going to miss the whole thing completely. And so the goal is always seeking the Lord Jesus' mind and doing his will, and when we do that, the truth becomes obvious. It's He goes on to kind of get after the Corinthians, right? Because 
You're not there yet, Corinthians. Yeah, you're yeah, still carnal. Yeah. You're still worldly in your thinking. You're still babes in Christ. I wanted to give you solid food, but I had to give you milk in a bottle like a little baby because I should have. you should have known these things already, the things that I've taught to you, but you you don't. And he, he gets after them for saying, some of you say you're followers of Paul. Others say you're a follower of Apostle, Apollos. Who are these two except men? You should be a follower of Christ. I've got to repeat what... I learned from a, a Nigerian years ago. I was in seminary. He had come from Nigeria to do some study, and his name was William Lautai. And he and I became friends. We're having coffee one day. And I said, William, I know you're an itinerant preacher. You ride a horse, and you go from village to village. You know, what's your worship service like? He said, well, I, I get there, and we start at about 7 in the morning, and people wander in until about 8 o'clock. And then we sing, you know, and read scripture. And then I preach. And I preach for about an hour. When I'm done preaching, I say, okay, now go out into the village and do what you just heard and come back at 3 o'clock and we'll talk about it. Now hmm. think about that for a moment. How often do we hear the Word of God, but we don't do the Word of God? Mm-hmm. And that's the key to this whole thing. If you want the mind of the Lord Jesus, it's not simply knowing, hey, I've memorized 40 Scripture verses, or I can quote you know, John 3.16 backward and forward. Are you doing it? And when you're doing it, then you have his mind. Yeah, if you look at, at again, uh, chapter 3 of Second Corinthians, verse 2, as Jeff was referring to it, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. So um, the corollary to that is, is sometimes when we're reading Scripture, we say, why didn't I see this before? Yeah. Why didn't I learn this lesson before? It may be because of unconfessed sin, but let's set that aside and assume that that's not the reason. It may be that you weren't ready to hear it yet. Or when God brings up an issue that uh, is a difficult issue that you're going to have to walk through, he waits until you're ready for it. Hmm. If you do the combined of all four of us as to how long we've studied the scriptures, you know, we're pushing 170-some years— when you boil it down, how many times do you read a scripture, you've read it all your life, and you say, like Greg's talking about, whoa, I didn't see that before. I didn't understand that. I see how I can apply that now. I hadn't thought about that before. That's the power of the Word of God. My wife and I were just talking about this yesterday, where you you read a new passage, it's like, oh, I see something new. And then you're listening to the radio, and, and the same passage or the same topic comes up, and then you're reading an article, the same topic comes up, and it's like multiple times it will come up in a matter of just a couple of days, and it's like God is now ready to teach you that, and not only teach you, but to reinforce it for yes. you. My, my mentor, J. Robert Clinton, um, who uh, spent his life trying to discern how God develops a leader, the body of his research was called the Emergent Leadership Theory, Emergence Leadership Theory. And he talked about the fact that God uses process items to shape us. In other words, um, the process items are meant to go ahead and move us along our path to spiritual maturation. One of those process items, what I think you're referring to, Jeff, he calls double confirmation. Double confirmation hmm. is when you hear about something that you didn't know before from one source, and then either right on the heels of it or shortly thereafter you hear it from a completely different source who didn't know your first source. And so that's the Spirit of God bringing it together, and the term for that in that process item is called double confirmation. I've worked among 
charismatic Lutherans. I know it's hard to believe there is such a thing, but they really <laughs> do exist. And when I was leading a church, one of the things I found interesting is that lots of people had words, and some of them literally contradicted one another. So I went back to Scripture, and I said, wait a minute, we got a problem here. And so with the elders, we finally agreed, and we started teaching that unless there, if you have a word and there is not a confirmation from somebody that's not sitting next to you, you didn't talk to right before the service, then maybe we've heard from the Lord. And it was astounding what happened in that congregation, because suddenly we were sensing we're hearing from the Lord. We weren't just getting the same words over and over from different people. Good word. That's really interesting, Tom Parrish. Thank you for sharing that. All right, we are coming up so close to the top of the hour, which means hour one of Guy Talk is almost coming to a conclusion. I still have some wonderful questions, and we're going to get to those in hour two. So I hope you can continue to listen. Um, still a lot of great questions coming in. So if you have uh, your question, please send it over. Don't be shy. 877-933-2484. Again, 877 you can also email me, Bill, at MyFaithRadio.com. I'm so delighted. As the power panel today is Jeff Verdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Dr. Greg Borgon. If you're brand new to Faith Radio, you can test, uh, text the word WELCOME to 877-933-2484, and we will uh, send you a new welcome packet. It's quite cool. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, you guys, I, I didn't want to embarrass you when I was talking about my pamphlet because that wasn't, that's not the first thing I wrote. The first thing I wrote is on a restaurant napkin. So <laughs> that, that's actually not for sale because I only got the one copy. So uh, yep. we can talk about that later when we come back. Uh, thank you so much. Send your questions. Let's get them over. 877-933-2484. Hour two of Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk is just around the corner. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.